When you're younger, people say to you, like, you're lucky to be even having this opportunity. But that's where people take advantage. And if they are actually somebody who's respectable, they won't have a problem with you doing your due diligence to protect yourself. I'm Carly Zakin. And I'm Danielle Weisberg. Welcome to 9 to 5-ish with The Skin. We've run into so many questions over the years and had so many moments where we needed advice and we got it from women who'd been there. And that's what we're bringing you with this show. Each week, we're helping you get what you want out of your career by talking to the smartest leaders we know. Because we know your work life is a lot more than nine to five. All right, let's get into it. Today, our guest is Emily Radikowski. She's a model who's been on the cover of Sports Illustrated and walked the runways in Paris and Milan. She's also acted in blockbuster hits, including Gone Girl. Recently, she's launched her own swimsuit line, which won her awards as a fashion designer. And Emily was named on the Forbes 30 Under 30 list. And last fall, she published an essay that went viral in the cut, which zoomed in on objectification and abuse of power. She's now about to release her book, My Body. Emily, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. We are going to jump in the way we like to jump in all conversations with a warm-up and a quick lightning round to get to know you better. Quick answers. Are you ready? Yes, let's do it. Okay. First job on your resume. Model. What is your most recent job? Writer. Any secret hobbies or skills? I'm not terrible at interior design. Hmm. <laughs> I'm sitting in my living room and I'm like, you know what? It looks pretty yeah. good. It looks not oh, terrible. Um, I'm really good. At, also, at um, I love, uh, this is totally more of a hobby, floral arrangements. Um, I also got really into that during quarantine. Oh, really? What's the last show you binge watched? Oh God. Um, I guess White Lotus I binge watch. Um, that's just the one that's coming to mind, but I feel like there was probably another one that was more terrible. Finish the sentence. What best describes your work day? Working nine till blank. Working nine till nine. <laughs> I feel like my work kind of never stops, which is good because it's like can be on the go. So it means, you know, I'm not sitting at a desk and clocking in and out, but also it kind of means that finding like true time where I'm not working is very rare. When was the last time you negotiated for yourself? I'm negotiating constantly, um, like an hour ago. (laughs) What were you negotiating? (laughs) Some outlet leaked something that they weren't supposed to, and I'm trying to decide if I'm going to still talk to them or what I'm going to try to negotiate out of their mistake. To be clear, it was not the skim. (laughs) It was not the skim. No, no. (laughs) (laughs) On a bad day, what is like your go-to snack? Like what's the that's the food that will make you happy. Thai food. I love a masamon curry. <laughs> when did you feel like you made it? Um, I don't think I like have ever felt that way, maybe, um, for better and for worse. And probably our most important question of the show, what is your go-to karaoke song? Okay, so it used to be Do Wop That Thing, Lauren Helm. <laughs> which is so hard. Yeah, that's a challenge. Also the rap. I appreciated that you put it in your book as something that was ambitious. Like it, <sighs> it was a hard song. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's very ambitious. Okay, so let's talk about your new book, My Body. It's a collection of self-reflective essays. What made you want to talk about uh, the experiences that you go into 
the book at, at this moment in your life, in your career? Why now? So it started out as a real personal project for me more than anything. I just, you know, was processing a lot of ideas and thoughts I had less around personal experience, but more about like my political beliefs and things I believed in general about our culture and our world or my experience as a woman and how it had led me to these kind of systems of belief. And through that, I, I ended up revisiting a lot of specific experiences, but I certainly, I didn't sit down at any point and thought, think like, I'm going to write about this thing that happened or whatever. And actually a lot of the things that are in the book were things that I had never talked about before or moments that I had forgotten until I was writing and thinking about these ideas and really like asking myself, like, why do you feel that way? Or what are the experiences that have led you to, to think in, in the ways that I do? Why did you choose essays? I love essays. I've always liked reading them. I feel like in our day and age, short attention span wise, like it's a really nice way to pick something up and put it down and feel like there's an idea. I also just like the liberty that you can have with an essay where you can really like make big kind of stylistic choices and weave four different narratives together or just kind of try something totally out there. And I don't really like reading memoirs. It's interesting because when I was reading it, you actually hit on what I didn't really put together, but that I'm used to reading memoirs or novels that are going on. And when I was reading the essays, I was like, oh, like bam, bam, bam. And it was feeding into what I do all day, which is look at things in vignettes and pieces and moments in time. But I think it does speak to kind of the moment that you're writing all of this in and and piecing it together. Yeah, I'm happy to hear that because like I'm not a musician, but I love like a really good album where you're like, and then that song comes on and it's just like what you need after the last one. So I think of books that way. And, you know, it's harder to do that with a memoir. I think just nonfiction in general can be kind of constrictive and essays have never felt boring to me. You know, one of the things between your essay that went viral last year in The Cut and your book, which I'm not going to call a memoir now, but... <laughs> it still definitely <laughs> is, you know, yeah. In your essay collection. <laughs> one of the things you talk about is around controlling one's image. And obviously means something really different to somebody who's in the public eye versus somebody where people don't know their name or, or likeness. And when I think about when you published that essay last year, you know, one of the first things you, that you really talked about was seeing a very famous artist turn one of your photographs into a print. And you didn't know about the image until it was already in a gallery. Just like, what does that feel like? What is that experience? So what's interesting about what you said about it's very different for celebrity than your average person. That's true. Like, I don't think every a random person is like, oh, yeah. And then all of a sudden this photo shoot I did was X, Y, and Z place. That being said, like now we all have social media and we all have our camera rolls and, you know, um, there's revenge porn and like the internet feels like this really unsafe place. I feel that people I know who their living isn't tied to their image still have this sort of sense of like, they take pictures of their kids on their phone and they're like, are these safe? You know? So I do think, especially for women in this day and age, like everybody is wondering about image and control and how to mitigate that and how to have a professional life and a personal life and a dating life and kind of be all those things at once. 
and it's difficult. But I think the answer would be frustrating. I don't know. What are the things that come like what comes up with loss of control? It's like scary. It's frustrating. It's irritating. It makes me feel desperate to try to do something to regain control. I think for a lot of people who don't necessarily know, and it's not just about your story, it's obviously part of something much larger in, in our society. You know, they're like, well, you're a person who's monetized off of putting your faith and body out there. So, like, what's the big deal? Mm-hmm. How do you respond to sort of the the ignorance around a question like that? I think it's interesting. Like for me, that would be the fact that I monetized and made a living off of my image is even more of a reason for me to have control over it, right? Because it's my it's attached to how I make a living. So being able to commodify and capitalize and personally benefit off of it is a part of like my survival. You've been doing press recently for the book. And one of the stories that you tell in the book is about uh, the experience that you had with Robin Thicke groping you when you're on the set. Mm -hmm. Obviously a role that made you a name, put you on the map. And when you were writing about it, it seemed to be like the first time that you really talked about it in a public way. What have you thought about how it's been reported or the reaction? Do you think that there's a difference in you waiting to bring it up now than if you had come out with this five years ago? Well, it was unfortunate because that juicy headline was leaked. It wasn't my choice. I wouldn't have put it out into the world without people being able to read the essay because the reason that I decided to even talk about it at all was not because I like want there to be consequences for Robin Thicke or that I think it's important for like the allegations to come to light, but more because it was a personal experience that felt really telling about the evolution of my politics and how I think about power and feminism. And, you know, it's obviously the video that made me famous. So it, it was not an essay I actually even really wanted to write. It had initially that anecdote about what happened on set had been buried in another essay that my editor was like, I think you need to write about that directly because it says so much about that before in my life, after the video and throughout, I mean, really, I would say the five years after the video, I was very defensive and would say to people that it was empowering and even could be called feminism because it was my choice. And in some ways, there's truth to the fact that by commodifying my image and my likeness and dancing around naked in that video, I have had a pretty successful career. So there's an argument for that. And I guess a truth there that it's important to acknowledge. And what I write about in the essay, which I'm looking forward to people reading, is that there were a lot of aspects about that job specifically that were really great. It was a bunch of women on set. I was 21 and I was really used to not being treated with respect and not being treated like you were part of the creative or part of the team and that set was different. So then there was this one moment that this thing happened with Robin Thicke and it was something that I just didn't think about. The main reason I didn't think about it was because I was embarrassed by it. And it made it so clear that I wasn't in control and in power in that video in the way that I had been saying and preaching to the media. 
But also what I've seen was a reminder of the consequences of coming forward with any sort of story everyone on the internet, it feels like in this exact moment is saying to me, why didn't you come forward with this sooner if you really wanted to say something about it? You were dancing around naked. What do you expect? Like all the kind of backlash that women get. And it's super frustrating because, of course, if you read the essay, I think you can understand why I told this story because it's the thesis of the book, which is like I had one way of thinking about power and about commodifying my body and image that wasn't entirely honest with myself and wasn't true. And this was an experience that was an example of that. If you're listening, it means that the book is now out. You can read the whole essay. What I found really interesting about that particular essay was it was like really kind of heartbreaking to me when you talked about that you felt safe, you felt like there were women on set, it was a different set, and then that this thing happens with him and how it made you feel and the ability to feel safe at work Mm -hmm. in your job, no matter what that is. Are there things that you have seen change? Do you have more hope for your industry um, about safety in the workplace? What are your thoughts on just extrapolating it from you being a model in, in this shoot? What do you take away from this for people who are experiencing workplace behaviors that should not happen? Obviously, my position as like I was an unknown model who was getting paid a day rate to be in this video has changed. Now I have more power in these kinds of situations. So I feel like I'm not in a position to to say whether things have changed or not because I'm not a 21-year-old going to a set as just a hired model. That being said, there is no union for models. There's really no official protection. There's no checks and balances. The agents are supposed to act that way, but they don't because their interests don't lie with protecting the girls. Their interests lie with making as much money as possible and pleasing the clients that, you know, are paying the bills. So based on what I know about just the industry and the system, I would say it definitely hasn't changed. A lot of these jobs, and I think that this is true, especially outside of the modeling industry, just in general, We now have a world where there's a lot of freelancing going on. There's a lot of like work comes together in strange ways and there isn't necessarily a human resources department or whatever else. Not that that always ensures safety and security for women at work, but definitely that's part of the problem is I think there's this casual feeling around the way that people work that doesn't allow for protection and safety of those who are vulnerable. I want to go to, in a lot of the the book, there's a theme between what you do and how you monetize and how you make a living. And I think, you know, you said this, and I think it's a really important point that not being fully in control of your own image means you lose out or you could lose out on some of the money that you would otherwise be paid from artists to paparazzi suing you for posting an image they took of you. How have those incidents affected your earning power? And how have you approached that, not from just the perspective of being a public face, but really from the the business Mm -hmm. sense? Well, I'm now obsessed with having a lawyer. (laughs) 
I was actually just talking about this with someone just that when you're younger, people throw contracts at you or say to you, like, you're lucky to be even having this job offer or this opportunity. So you should just take what we're offering. And I think that when you're younger or more new to your field, you feel like, well, that's definitely true. And I, and I should, but that's where people take advantage. And if they are actually somebody who's respectable, they won't have a problem with you going and doing your due diligence to protect yourself. So I don't know if that totally answers your question around image, but just as far as advice I give people now, I'm like, just get a great lawyer and push back. If something doesn't feel right, know your worth and really think about what you're bringing to this deal, because there's a reason that they're offering you a contract, right? You have things and how much are you, what are you valuing that at? And how are you thinking about that? And what do you expect in return? I think something that you keep coming back to is I can do this now versus when I was 21 and and didn't have that. And we think about it a lot when we give people advice, when they're asking about how do I negotiate for this job or how much do I push? And it's hard. It's hard to tell someone. Obviously, workplace safety is very different. But on the idea of not knowing how much to push or getting that great lawyer who's going to be the bulldog, when do you tell people to start thinking with that hat on? I would say that it's not that, unfortunately, not that different from workplace safety too. I mean, I think that that's why people don't say things at work is because they're in no position to complain, essentially. That's certainly true with models. There's another girl who's probably younger and taller and whatever, who wouldn't complain about doing this thing. And you have that sense of scarcity and feeling like you're going to piss off a lot of adults around you if you don't say yes, or if you complain about anything, even when things are just totally cut and clear unsafe. I would say people listen to this kind of advice and are like, oh, it's easy for you to say, they don't know my situation. They don't know my position. They don't know you know, where I am and whatever. I would say start doing it. Obviously, there's a resources thing too. It doesn't even have to be about lawyers, but even just taking an extra day to think about something instead of saying, oh yeah, sure. I'll be there in an hour to sign that. Or, you know, getting excited about the offer, like giving yourself a day to think about something before you agree to it. There's just really small ways that you can protect yourself. And I would say everyone should do that. I have friends who work in all kinds of fields who are still students and waitressing, and they still are thinking about, okay, what do I bring? What's my value to this restaurant? And how do I argue for these shifts? And There's a balance, obviously, about like how hard you push. But I think understanding your value is so important in negotiating no matter what level you are. When you look back at your career so far, as you wrote in the book and are discussing now, you've experienced and witnessed some pretty disturbing incidences and in toxic workplaces. What are moments that stick out that you're like, wow, if I could redo that, I would do that so differently today? Oh my God, I think... The reason that I wrote this book was because I felt that way about so many things. It wasn't that I thought like, oh, these fucked up things happened. It was like, oh my God, like I had done, I've played so many things wrong and I had so much shame about them that I never even took a harder look at them until I started to say like, okay, maybe it's different. Maybe I should try writing about these things from a different perspective instead of being so hard on myself. And I think that there's just so many examples of that. And it wasn't until recently that I started to think, okay, you know, these things are complicated. There's things that I could have done differently for sure. And there's also just things that happen. 
Is there a moment that you think about where you're like, this is how I learned to negotiate for myself? I would say some of the experiences I had where books were being sold of nude images of me that I didn't have any control and realizing like having a lawyer on the phone that I had never talked to before who was big and fancy say to me, you have no legal standing in this. There's nothing you can do. It was a burn, but from then on, I was really smart about every single thing I did. And in some ways, it made me very hypervigilant when it came to anything. I would be like, okay, do we have language to avoid X, Y, Z catastrophe that could happen? So unfortunately, I think a lot of like my savvy, quote unquote, came from just like messing up. (laughs) I was struck by in the book when you revealed a lot about your own insecurities. I think it's such a superficial, naive thing to be like, well, like if I looked the way you looked, like I wouldn't feel so insecure, but obviously that's silly. Everyone has their own stuff that they, they deal with. But I was struck by how you've struggled to stay confident at, at different moments. And I'm curious now, this is a career show where we talk about like how people really climb the ladder in their respective industry while sometimes pushing to the side where they don't feel strong. What do you do when you don't feel confident but need to like keep forging ahead? That's a really good question. I don't have a hack for that, unfortunately. I feel like I could tell your listeners, oh, just remember the things that you're good at or something like, but it's just not that easy. The only thing I'll say is that like in writing this book, there were a lot of moments where I felt like, okay, am am I really going to be able to do this? Um, Like, I've written these, you know, X, whatever, 50,000 words, but am I going to be able to actually finish writing a book? Even though, and I had proof that I was almost there, but it, it felt still like maybe that was just a mistake of some kind. And I would just force myself to continue. <laughs> so I don't know if that can be applied to everything, but instead of being afraid of failure, I just sort of continued to try and fail. And then eventually somehow the veil would be lifted and I'd be able to actually do something decent. When we were doing prep for this interview, we tell our team every week who we're interviewing. So we told our team, you know, we're interviewing Emily and we've all grown up seeing the music videos, seeing Gone Girl, we've followed you. And the questions were, ask her about what it's been like to be a new mom and balancing that Mm -hmm. with when your career is your image. And I thought that was really interesting. You know, I have a one-year-old and just having a baby changes, at least for me, how you think about your body, how you think about your priorities, work becomes something that wants to have all of this meaning. And I don't do something that is dependent on how I look. How has that experience been for you? I could talk about this for a whole hour, to be honest with you. Congrats on your one-year-old. That's a big deal. Thank you. So mine is almost seven months old and I cannot believe how it goes by so fast. Absolutely blowing my mind. I just got used to saying six months and now he's almost seven months. So first answer, I would say it's totally shifted my priorities in a way that I didn't expect. I was very much of the mindset of like, yeah, I'm going to be a mom, but I'm always going to be somebody who's really obsessed with my career and my work. And I just know that about myself. But what I found was that when he was born, really like everything else just sort of didn't seem as important anymore. And it was hard because I was finishing this book, which was like my life's work. 
(laughs) and felt like the most important thing I've ever done. But then I had a child and it felt trivial. (laughs) It just seemed like not important in the same way that it had. And I was scared. I was really afraid that I was going to come out of a postpartum haze and be like, oh no, I was high off of whatever hormones I was feeling and I didn't get to do what I wanted to do and feel disappointed in what I was putting out in the world. The balance thing is something I'm still figuring out in a real way, but I have found that he's going to just be the most important thing in my life now and being a mom is going to be the most important thing. But also the more that I'm who I am, the better it is for him. So that's really, that helps me kind of return to that because otherwise, yeah, I didn't think I was going to be that way, but it was very hard for me to like care about stuff in the same way I did, which also, you know, there's good things to that as well. And then it's just, as far as the body stuff goes, I gained so much respect for my body. It was talk about loss of control, being pregnant and giving birth. You have absolutely no control and you're inside of the body that you have no control over. And every day it's changing and, you know, it's totally alien and freaky. It feels like science fiction. But instead of kind of spiraling, the last essay in the book is called Releases. And I talk about giving birth and it did feel like a sort of release and a letting go of control, which is, I think, more important for me than even control. Like that's the way that I'm going to be happy in my life. So that's been really good. And then just the journey with the way I look has been bizarre. I can't believe a year ago, I hadn't even announced my pregnancy yet. And, you know, I gained whatever amount of weight. I lost a ton of weight. I was feeding my child with my breasts. Then my breasts deflated. Like it's been such a crazy ride. But I think overall, I just keep focusing on how strong my body is and how much I can depend on it without having to worry about it. And that's something that is really grounding. You now have a swimmer business and you're an author. What have you learned about yourself as you've gone into to new ventures? I'm going to sound like a broken record, but the the main thing I always, you know, people who work with me and all these different avenues realize is that I just really do love control so much. And I've learned that I'm not necessarily good at delegating and I don't always trust people who are in positions of authority to tell me things just because Again, I've had a lot of experiences in my life where I did trust people who are in positions and they didn't do enough research or enough work. I think that's been the initial lesson. And then now as I've entered this new period in my life where I just actually can't do everything myself, I can't do a bunch of podcasts about my book or write my book and also be you know, in charge of everything that's happening with my swimwear business. I've essentially learned to delegate in a better way and find people that I do trust. And that's like the only way that you can do a lot of things. I want to go to one of our listeners, Sarah, who submitted this question. And I thought it was a really interesting one. Your image is part of how you make money. You also are known to be a very private person about your personal life. So the question from Sarah is, Emily, even though you're private, when you are using your status or power or celebrity, How do you make sure your words and actions count? So I can't, (laughs) which is frustrating for me. I think what we're talking about with the leak of the blurred lines thing is a perfect example because I wrote this essay that I 
really tried to make as nuanced and clear as possible. And then I just watched it get turned into tiny little clickbait thing. And there isn't even an option to hear things in my own words yet. So I guess I feel like I, what I try to do is just know my intention and be really specific about what I want and know that it's not always going to work out perfectly. And that's just par for the course, but I at least can go to sleep well at night thinking and remembering, okay, I'm still focused on the idea, even if all these other things are happening and it's getting misconstrued or whatever. Final question. (laughs) Who's someone else we should have on the show? I mean, who I'd be really interested to hear talk about her career is Monica Lewinsky. Yes. Yes. Because she, you know, obviously has been doing a lot of press around her show. And I just, I don't know. I was really young when that whole thing happened, but she was so young. And now I realize Mm -hmm. that she was 21. Yeah. And what that must've been like to look at her future and what is going to happen to this person who had an affair with the president. That must have been so terrifying. And she seems like a pretty cool person. (laughs) Like I've read interviews and stuff with her. So I just want to know how she, I don't want to say pivoted, but how she dealt with what she dealt with Mm -hmm. in a culture that was totally unaccepting and totally vilifying of her. Emily, thank you so much for the time. Congratulations on the book and the baby and everything. Thank you. It was really nice to be here. Congratulations. Thanks, guys. Thanks for listening to this episode of 9 to 5-ish with The Skim. A new episode will be in your feed again next Wednesday. In the meantime, check out our news podcast, Skim This. Every Thursday, we cover what you need to know each week in 30 minutes or less.